Hey y'all, this is Jonathan Martin welcoming you back for another edition of the Zeitcast. So today's episode is one that is distinctly special to me. We recorded it a couple weeks ago. Actually, it was just after the whole crisis around the coronavirus, COVID-19 had first broken. In case you feel like we were breaking rules of social distancing here, this would just encourage not to necessarily stay at home, but just in very small groups of folks. And I got to go over to my friend Lance Rodman's house. Lance is just a beautiful soul. He's the operations pastor at the table. He's in the process right now of finishing up his uh, doctoral program. And there's a lot I could say about Lance. And I know I introduced him a little bit kind of in this conversation, but I want to take a moment maybe to say this first. I feel like one of the ways that this episode is important and perhaps uniquely special, I know that we've had a number of folks on the show already in terms of LGBT Christians, people like Padraig Otuma, the great poet and writer, uh, people like Sarah Miles, the wonderful Episcopal writer who wrote Take This Bread, uh, people like, very recently, my friend Glennon Dole. But I feel like this is the episode that goes further than any that we've had thus far in terms of Lance really sharing his story of coming out, what that meant for him as a person of faith, uh, growing up in a context of a uh, conservative Christian Baptist environment. And I know that any conversation around sexuality is going to challenge people. And I hear from folks all the time who listen to this podcast who are on different places on that journey of discernment of how to think about sexuality, how to think about self, how to think about scripture, and what to do with all of that together. But I feel like Lance's witness is one that's especially important because um, not only did he come to a place of feeling accepted by God and being able to accept himself, uh, but part of, I think, his unique witness is the way that he's taken everything he's experienced in his past, and I say this without judgment on anybody else's journey, but the kind of integration that's possible here, the way that he's able to bless the people and places where he's come from, and this is what we chose for the uh, title for this week because I feel like it was so profound in the actual conversation. This whole idea of, in, of including the people who excluded you. I don't even know exactly how that's possible or how to commend that to everybody, but it sure seems like something that's possible by the Spirit. And I just feel like somehow this is a conversation that really builds some bridges um, that need to be built. And I think it's a conversation that no matter who you are or where you come from, is going to is going to challenge your theology and is also going to cause you to come, I believe, smack dab into the love of God as it's embodied in my friend Lance and Wade. What a gift he is to our community. And I believe this conversation is going to be a gift to you. Thank you for all of you who support us. Uh, for patrons, we just relaunched the Patreon page with all new incentives. I'm embarrassed that's been outdated for so long, but we are on it. And in fact, just put up a bonus episode a little earlier tonight that I think you'll really enjoy. But this conversation, very, very special. Hope you enjoy it. Can't wait to hear what you think. Without further ado, my conversation with Lance Rodman. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Zeitcast. 
Well, welcome back to another episode of the Zycast, my friends. I have been especially looking forward to this episode. I am in the home right now with my dear friend, Lance Rodman. And what all can I say about Lance? I mean, there's so much I want to say. He is a dear friend of mine. He is the operations pastor now at the table. He is finishing up right now his D-Men at South University. And um, I really just can't say enough about what he means to me, not only in terms of his friendship to me personally, but what he means to our community at the table. Um, He's one of the most just devout, beautiful souls that I know and such a wonderful follower of Jesus. Um, What he's brought both to my life and both the life of our community is just nothing less than remarkable. So I've been really, really looking forward to having this conversation because I also think he has one of the most just remarkable, interesting theological journeys of anybody that I know. So this is going to be a fun conversation. I have fun conversations with Lance all the time, and um, I'm just just eager to let you kind of eavesdrop on one of those conversations now. So Lance, thank you so much for letting me come to your home and do this, especially in the midst of the apocalypse. This is amazing. You know, it's the zeitcast in the end of days, and uh, I'm doing all right. So. Yes, <laughs> the end of days, and I'm doing all right. <laughs> they make fun of me at the table because I butcher that lyric all the time, you know, but we're doing all right, and I'm glad to be here. <laughs> you do butcher it on purpose, in fairness. On purpose. It's like, it's yeah. in um, and, are you, and are you holding up okay in the midst of all this wildness? Or? I'm okay, you know. I spent uh, about four hours today just deep cleaning my house because my company, thank God, we can be totally remote. So I spent like four hours cleaning my house so that I could not go crazy in this next quarantine period. But yeah, I'm doing great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, I thought maybe a good place to start. And of course we've had the opportunity privately to share a lot of our, of our stories, but I don't think I've ever asked you this question personally before. What's kind of your earliest memory consciously of God or of the presence of God? So it's kind of funny. Um, we, we might get into this. We might not, but like, I love Bart, right? And whenever he was like almost on his deathbed, he asked, he was asked, um, what do you know about God? Mm. And he said, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Mm. And there were three things that we did growing up. Um, every single night we would sing that song. Jesus loves me. Right. Mm. Um, we would sing Jesus loves the little children of the world which I'll do you the favor and not sing that. Jesus loves the little children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight, right? We sang that and we prayed the Lord's prayer. Mm. Um, And so every time I kind of give my testimony story, whatever you want to call it, I always talk about um, there wasn't a time I didn't know of Jesus, Mm. right? I didn't, have this remarkable coming to faith story like some people do, you know, where like I was caught up in drugs and I met Jesus in jail or whatever. And those are great stories. But mine was just like, I knew Jesus from the time I was born. I was born in the pew, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's been a journey. Um, and just my theological journey, my, my church journey has led me to a place where I can say, you know, for half of my life, I didn't know Jesus. Mm. I didn't know him. Well, I knew of him. Um, I knew about him. I could tell you facts about him, but, and I don't want to be cocky and say like, Oh, I know Jesus so much now, Mm. but there was a shift in my life. And a lot of things led to that where I went from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. Mm. Um, 
And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Just mm. kind of brewing in that friendship, right? Mm. Um, we talk a lot at the table about just leaning on the chest of Jesus and listening to him. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now, just in that season of almost just a, a reconvening of a friendship mm. that I always thought about and knew, knew about, but now I just am experiencing it, you know? Mm. That's so interesting to me of having an experience where there's never a time when you really didn't know about where you, you always knew about Jesus, but that difference between knowing about Jesus and really knowing Jesus. Now, how, how would you describe kind of the early part of your theological formation? Was that, now, so that mostly growing up Baptist church, Edmond, Oklahoma? Yep. So, um, I was baptized in a church. Uh, it was a free will Baptist church in Dell city, Oklahoma. Okay. My family moved to Edmond, Oklahoma. So for those of y'all that don't know, uh, Oklahoma city is an incredibly large city with different suburbs. I, I grew up in Edmond, which is like 15 minutes north of Oklahoma City, a very affluent suburb, and uh, went to one of the largest Baptist churches um, in in the country in Edmond, Oklahoma. Fantastic church. My, my family still goes there. Love a lot of the people that are there. Um, I was re-baptized there. Right? Mm. It was kind of a, a part of my theological journey. Um, but I went there from the time I was like probably in second grade until my sophomore year of college. Mm. Um, kind of a reformed Baptist church. The former pastor, he retired since I left that church, but um, he was on the council of the gospel coalition. Okay. So you can kind of tell, you know, the, the types of things that church was about. I still love a lot of what I learned in that church, right? Mm. Um, a high view of scripture, high view of Jesus, high view of the church. Um, but I mean, I, I did eventually have to leave Mm. and I had to leave that part of me. But in that, in that time, you know, I was always, and this, this really in hindsight forms a lot of what I believe about being a Christian and being a pastor, being kind of a, a theological voice in the church right now is a lot of what I believed probably from the time you know, until I was about 17 or 18. And this is when my story really started to shift and God really started to change some things about 17 or 18, senior year of high school, freshman year of college around there. I was always taught to be on fire for Jesus. Yeah. Right. To, and for, for us, that meant reading your Bible every day for at least an hour. So, So either getting up early or staying up late, I've never been a morning person never been a morning person, never will be a morning person. If I have to be somewhere at 9am, I get up 30 minutes before I got to be there. Mm. So I'm more of a night person, but, um, you know, reading your Bible and praying for at least an hour every day. And if it was 45 minutes, you weren't doing it right. Mm-hmm. If it was an hour, you were doing it right. Uh, sharing your faith with at least three people a day. We, we have this magic number of three, sharing your faith mm-hmm. with three people per day, right? having your testimony memorized Mm. um, in at least two minutes Um, and tithing. That was kind of the spiritual life, Mm. right? Oh, and going on mission trips once a year on spring break. Yeah. That was Christian life for me. It was, it was a very up and down type relationship because this church um, for all of its wonderful beauties, it was very um, events based, Mm. especially in the youth culture. So we had summer events, we had fall events, we had spring events and winter events. Mm. 
And I could probably, if I went and did some data, right? Like, cause I still have all the journals cause I'm, I, I'm very big on journaling. I still have all the journals from when I was a kid, teenager. I could probably go back and map out like the highs and lows of my spiritual life based on those events. Hmm. Um, and it was, it would just fluctuate. It would go up and down and up and down. Cause it was a very, it was a very events based, wasn't sustainable. Hmm. Right. All of that stuff, as great as it was, I knew that there was something wrong hmm. because I, I hit a wall. I was like 18 years old. I was at the church every single day hmm. doing stuff. Cause I was involved. Yeah. You know, like I, I was a youth leader. I was an intern in my church. Um, I was, I was personally discipling like three or four young men. Yeah. So that was a very big thing for us at that church, which I, I do love. Right. But I had like three guys, I was probably 17 or 18 at this time. I had probably three or four different 12, 13, 14 year old guys that I was personally discipling mm. all that stuff. I'm just like 17, 18. And I'm like, I feel like a 50 year old man. Yeah, and it I'm, probably should be said too. Just I know of your story about now. Like you were theologically astute. I mean, you you did a deep dive within your own tradition. I mean, like you were, you know, you weren't just like devout. I mean, like you were. Smart. We didn't have it at this time because, like, you know, I would consider myself probably an Episcopalian now, and the verbiage there wouldn't have stuck. But I was an acolyte, definitely. Mm. You know, um, my family was very good friends with the senior pastor. Mm. Um, probably by the time I was 18, I had spent maybe of my own money, five to $6,000 on, wow. on theology books, which most of which I still have. Um, I mean, I listened to sermons constantly. I knew that I was called to ministry from the time I was like 16, 17. I was like the it boy mm. at my church. Like I was the pastor in training. Mm. My, my friends kind of made fun of me in a way. Like it was in, it was good. It was in good humor, but they're like, our pastor is never going to retire. He's a wonderful pastor. He finally retired like two or three years ago. Really old man. They're like, you're going to take his place. Mm. They were just they, they were just convinced you're going to take that place. Mm. Um, I was just like pastor in waiting. Yeah. Right? So interesting, interesting to where like I am now. Yeah. Right? Wow, that's yeah. fascinating. So you know, you described hitting a wall. What did, what did that look like for you? What was um, the wall? Well, a lot of that had to do with my sexuality. Hmm. Um, when I, w- when I went into college, uh, I really started, like, I really started to understand that I was gay, hmm. but I fought it for so much of my life, hmm. so much of my life. And I had this really well-developed theology about why I could never give in to that hmm. ever. But some stuff started to really change. So I studied abroad my sophomore year of college. So I turned 19 in Europe. Um, And just, I don't know, that season in my life, kind of being away for six months from Mm -hmm. my church body. And at that time, so I was at Oklahoma Christian University. Um, we, We had a study abroad program in Vienna, Austria. And another sister school which was far more liberal mm. than our, our school. It was the first year we ever did a partnership. Mm. Um, it's the first time we ever did a partnership with another sister school and had them at our study abroad program. And so I had all these liberal kids in class with me mm. and we're taking theology class in Vienna, Austria, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And one of them is gay and he's a Christian and he's leading worship and he's preaching. Mm. Right. 
And he's one of the most admirable Christians I had known at that time, right? Mm. Like, if I didn't know he was gay, I just thought he was, like, he probably could have grew up at my church. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden I found out he was gay. I don't, I don't remember the story now or how I, fact, how I figured out that, they, that he was gay. But he was gay. Mm. And it really changed my categories. Mm. Really started to shift the way that I thought about being Christian and being gay. Because for me, it was either or. Yeah. But there was this guy who was openly gay, but also a very devout Christian, mm-hmm. a spiritual leader mm-hmm. in our community. And from that point on, I, it, it, it set me on this trajectory mm-hmm. that I'm finally on right now. Um, where I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that identity. I'm not ashamed of that sexuality. If you don't mind me asking, Lance, like, um, did you feel like, given the kind of theological formation that you had, did you feel like on some level that was something that you always, that you always knew or that you knew when we were young? Like, was there, were you even able to have conversations about that before that season of your life? Or was it given the kind of culture you were in theologically, was that not even something that you would have felt like you could have talked about with friends or? It's funny now. So talking to people from that old life, which is kind of how I call it. Um, where they're like, yeah, we always knew you were gay. Hmm. Right. Um, so that point was where I really figured that I could accept what I always knew was in me. Because hmm. for that, before that, it was, that was evil. That had to be fought. You couldn't give in to that, right? Um, that was a different kind of sin. Because it's almost yeah. in a way giving up to sin, right? Is how I was taught, to, or how I was taught about it. Um, but that point, it really showed me you could be both. Mm. You could be gay mm-hmm. and a Christian at the same time. Mm. So at that point, I really just just saw maybe there's a different way. Mm. And from then on, my life changed. Mm. Did you ever experience, because, you know, even some of our friends, like at the table, I know have stories. That, you know, and, and your background, I know, is different because kind of coming up sort of in a little more Baptistic, Reformed way, but some of our more charismatic friends who had some of those painful experiences of people trying to, you know, do deliverance ministry, pray the gay way. Like, did you have friends who tried to do, was it, was it that kind of thing where the people tried to talk you out of it? Was there anything aggressive and, or, you know, what was your experience like when you first even began to talk about that? I'm fortunate that I never really had that type of experience. And it, it might be, and I don't know, if it would have been different if I'd have came out in high school. So I came out whenever I was 21. Okay. Uh, I was an adult living on my own, had my own money. Like I was totally independent of my parents. And I think my parents are not that crazy where if I would have come out, um, cause like my, my husband, he was exercised Mm. whenever Mm. he was a kid because they thought he was gay. Mm. Right. Um, I'm, I'm so, I'm so thankful that that was not my experience. Um, and I really, really have a passion for those, for those people that, that do have that experience and to show them. Cause like a lot of those people have just left the church. Sure. So I really kind of feel like, I don't know. I I hope this doesn't sound bad, but like an apostle to the LGBTQ community, right. To show that there is a different way. Yeah. Um, but no, I never really had that. And after I came out, I mean, I had, of course I had the messages like, Oh, I, I'm praying for you. Which is such a loaded thing to say to somebody. Yeah. Oh, I'm praying for you. I had the messages, oh, which were far and few between, but like, oh, you're going to hell. But 
in everything I've come out in, right? Because there's, I mean, it's, it's been a process, but in every single pr- stage of the process, the love has been louder than the hate. Mm. Wow. Which just showed me like God is, God is doing something. God yeah. is in this. Yeah. Um, and for me, that was just more validation than anything. Like I could have got my theology totally right. I could have mm-hmm. figured everything out linguistically and the mm-hmm. Greek and justified my argument. But the fact that like God blessed me through that mm. was w- way more of a testimony that he was okay with what I was doing mm. um, than anything could have been. Mm. I do find it interesting though on that very point, because I don't know, I feel like I've had a number of my friends, even some of our friends who had some kind of mystical, ex- mystical experience, the love of God that, you know, made them feel accepted or whatever. But you know, all along you were such you were always drawn to theology. You always cared about the text. You still care about the text. I've even heard you describe yourself describe as almost theologically conservative in that way, and that you have such a high view of scripture. So what, if anything, like, what was the turning point for you as a person who does have a high view of scripture to feel like that you came to somehow understand the text differently or could find yourself in the story in a, of, of scripture in a different way than the story that you had been given? Yeah. So, I mean, I've joked before and it's like half joking, half serious where I say I'm, I'm gay because I'm a biblical literalist. Mm. Right. Um, I believe in the text and Christian witness so much that it made me gay. Mm. Didn't make me gay, but it helped me accept the fact that I was gay. And for the first, probably three or four months of me coming out, um, I didn't run away from the church. I didn't run away from God in a way. I stopped going to church, but I knew that that was only just to figure out kind of where I belonged. Yeah. Just part of my story. Cause like I couldn't go to churches that were totally 100% gay affirming at that mm. time. I don't I mean the table didn't exist at that time. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't go to those churches because I couldn't buy into what they were saying about the Bible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where, a lot of the progressive world says progressive things because we say that the Bible is an old, dusty book that's a right. product of its time, and I can't right. really buy into that. Yeah, yeah. I had such mystical experiences with the Bible, mm. right, in the Jesus I met there, mm. um, that I could never buy into that argument. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I couldn't fit into the conservative churches. Mm-hmm. Um, the evangelical churches that I was part of, which I mean, there's some fantastic churches in yeah. Oklahoma city yeah. that we would classify as conservative churches. There's some in our own neighborhood. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I can never really go to those. Um, I probably could go to those, but like we were just talking off mic about this, you know, um, where you could go to a church, but if you wanted to be a greeter right. in, in your right. way, or you wanted to hell even be a pastor, yeah. which I knew that I was called to be, mm-hmm. So I, I was just always a misfit, but all that to say, I never really ran away from my upbringing. I just dove deeper into it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Because the Jesus that I was always taught wasn't the Jesus I see in the Gospels now yeah, and know now yeah. and follow now. So for me, and that was about four years ago that I started to really just dive into 
the Jesus I knew. And there's mm-hmm. so many different, I mean, in, we can talk for three hours. I've written papers on this that are online, so you can go and mm-hmm. Google my name and find them. Um, but for me, I finally realized that the Bible is 100% true mm-hmm. and it doesn't condemn homosexuality as a sin. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even universalist at that time, mm-hmm. you know, because that kind of solves all these problems mm-hmm. right now. Um, since I would consider myself like a patristic universalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but even not being a universalist at that time, I finally just said, okay, well, like, let's really get into the, the Greek, right? Mm-hmm. Let's get into the history here. Um, and I finally had to say, well, Jesus healed the servant of a centurion. Yeah. And that is such a historically loaded yeah. thing to say the original hearers of that in the gospels, mm-hmm. when he healed a centurion servant, mm-hmm. that was probably his sex slave mm. by all indication. Mm. Now I'm not condoning slavery here, sure, right? Sure. But he didn't bat an eye at that. Um, and even more than that, like he preached on the woman at the well yeah. Y'all might hear thunder. We're in Oklahoma. Yeah, storm right. season. <laughs> so storm season in the apocalypse. In the apocalypse, right? <laughs> um, where Jesus met this pariah of a woman in all yeah. indications. She's a pariah theologically. Yes. She's a pariah economically. She's probably dirt ass poor. Right, right. She's a pariah socio- sociologically mm-hmm. because she's a whore. Yeah. Based on the current. Um, understandings of like the marriage relationship and he goes and he knows her Mm. and he loves her. Mm. I think Paul talks about that in one of his epistles, right? That the beauty of the gospel is we're fully known and we're fully loved. Mm. So all these things, just kind of realizing that God knows me and he loves me Mm -hmm. um, really just, sit me on a theological trajectory that I never thought like, I mean, 10 years ago, if you'd have asked me that we're, that we'd be talking about this right now, I would have thought that it, that you, that you were crazy. Yeah. Right. I mean, gospel coalition, that whole kind of neo Calvinistic world. I mean, for anybody who's familiar with that, it couldn't be more, of an unlikely story. Um, well, I still love a lot of those. People. Oh, I know you, you know, do. And you, and you, and you speak it. well. You, you speak and I, well. You, you know, we. I, te- I know. I teach you about this. A lot. He teases <laughs> me so much, guys. Um, because I mean, obviously, I can't buy into everything that they're saying. Sure. But I will never be. And I talk about this a lot. This is part of my identity as a pastor yeah. and a, and just as a Christian. I will never be one of those progressives that for all intents and purposes are exactly like the fundamentalists that we're responding to because we're kidding ourselves. If we think that, that progressives aren't as good at building walls Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. the theological Mm -hmm. fundamentalists are Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. I'll never be one of those people. Now, would I go to that church? Probably not. Yeah. I hear you. But, and that's what my dissertation is about, right? Like, we are all part of one family mm-hmm. as the church. Mm-hmm. So should we split churches because there are serious, serious theological and biblical disagreements? Mm. My argument is no. I totally agree with you. You know, like but, could yeah. I partner with a church? And I'm thinking, you know, like I don't want to name drop, yeah. but there's a fantastic Presbyterian church mm. in downtown Oklahoma City mm-hmm. that is part of the PCA, so yes. a conservative, yes. a conservative Presbyterian church. 
that does really, really amazing things in our city. Yeah. Agreed. Would I hold an ecumenical service with them? Some progressives would say no because they're complementarian, yeah, they mm-hmm. right? Um, I would say yes, mm-hmm. right? I'll, I'll never be one of those progressives. And I and I really, really say this, not condemning the progressives. I know that yeah. there's a lot of hurt. I know that there's a lot of things that can trigger pain from mm-hmm. people's church experiences mm-hmm. in the progressive world. And that's what the table is all about. Sure. Like being a church for those who honestly hate church yeah. in a way, yeah. who never thought that they could be part of a faith yeah. community. I love that and I celebrate that. Yeah. But I speak, and I'll name drop here, I studied under John Piper. Yeah, sure. And I love the guy. Mm-hmm. Do I hate what he says about homosexuality? Mm. Do I hate what he says about um, women's role in ministry? Of mm. course. Mm. But I'll never be able to say that I didn't learn something mm-hmm. from him or appreciate mm-hmm. something from mm-hmm. him. And hate, I mean, hell, I can hate 90% of what somebody says, mm-hmm. and that 10% is glorious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's kind of where I think I can be a little more charitable than a lot of progressives yeah. can be. Um, because half of the books, and I, I mean, I, I probably have $20,000 worth of theology books. Mm. $19,999 are from theological conservatives. Yeah. That's interesting. And I would read them any day over a lot of progressives. Yeah. I, I've got to chime in on a couple of these things. Lance. I mean, first of all, it's one of the things I love most about you is that there's, and not, and, and with no condemnation, of course, for people whose stories have been traumatic, who don't land this place. But the fact that for you, there's not a sense of bitterness from wherever you come from, that there's a sense of being able to still find treasure and even being able to honor spiritual elders from those communities where you still have significant, uh, significant disagreement. Um, I love what you're saying, because for me, this is a significant point. The idea of even being able to still worship some of these folks, because for me, like the moment that we say um, I couldn't worship with people who disagree with here and here, it's like, man, even the idea of elevating those things over the essence of the creed. Even, even if they do that in response to us, well, I can't worship with somebody who, who accepts these things or believe these things. Well, yeah, well, but for us to be able to say, hey, if, if, if you believe in the same, if you profess the same creed, if we're people at the same table, I love all that. But I think, you know, one of the things I, that, I, that I love the most, Lance, because I feel like I hear this so rarely and I feel like even when I t- whenever I talk about this, people just look at me funny because, you know, the world is so binary and uh, politicized in a particular way right now. You know, I know that for a lot of my theologically conservative friends to shift on, well, on LGBT stuff in particular. It's like uh, as a if, 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 you, if you come from a conservative evangelical background, you might as well be part of a different religion right now. It's like, oh, so it's like you're Hindu, whatever. And no condemnation on Hindus, but it's like it feels like that. And for but for me, that this is an important point, like for all the things that I can appreciate about theological progressives, I do feel like it's so significant, like how you do the math for me as a person who loves Jesus coming to believe that the table of Jesus is more inclusive than I used to believe, but that is, it is in fact the table of Jesus that is in fact only in Christ that neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor Gentile is possible, that it's in Christ 
that it's possible to have a community that that's expansive. What I see happen, unfortunately, a lot of progressive communities is when you lose the emphasis on the in Christness. It's like there, there's a dimension of power that's lost. And even though I might agree on 99% of the issues, and yes, peacemaking, yeah, I'm with you. And justice, I'm with you. And yes, everybody belongs, I'm with you. It's like there's a dimension of power that's lost when you lose the particularity of the Jesus story. And in that regard, I do feel very different from a lot of progressives in that way. And so I just think I hear from people all the time, even who listen to podcasts, who feel like such misfits for this reason. They, they, because they long for a more inclusive faith, they don't feel like they belong in their theologically conservative communities anymore. But they go into a more um, theologically progressive space. Where, and again, a note not hating in that direction, but where there's not an emphasis anymore on the Gospels and the Jesus as presented in the Gospels and the particularity of Christian practices. They feel like they kind of have to sell off their grandma's Jesus to get there, and that doesn't feel right either. So then they feel like they just don't belong anywhere. I feel like I hear that all the time these days. Yeah, totally. And I talk about a lot, just kind of to retweet that, I get to 100% of my progressive conclusions from reading basically 0% of progressive authors. Fascinating. I just don't. Yeah. Now, I mean, I get there in a different way, Yeah. but I still get there. Yeah. Yeah. I get there as the Bible being my primary source, mm. but also, and it would probably irritate the heck out of a lot of these people, but I read conservative authors like say John Piper, mm. Tim Keller, and I just take their conclusions to the umpteenth degree. The mm. things that they would never say, right? Mm. Can you give me an example? Um, well, for example, I can go to Bart. Yeah. Right? Which is why I am, I would still say I am broadly in the reform tradition. Now, yeah. before I came to the table for three years, my husband and I went to a fantastic Episcopal church here mm -hmm. in Oklahoma City. Um, so... I would say I'm broadly reformed mm -hmm. a la Bart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. You know, because I was high Calvinist. Yeah. I made Brad Zerzak last week laugh when I said, because he was talking about how he used to be a five-point Calvinist. I said, I used to be a seven-point Calvinist. He goes, I didn't know there were two more. Right? I was, yeah. I was a Calvinist of the Calvinist. Yeah. But I still am mm. a la Bart. Mm -hmm. Where I think that I, I don't know if it's just... Because, I mean, I'm about to finish my D-man. I would love to go to law school after this. Maybe I have the lawyer mentality mm. of, I think, just maybe not really twisting people's arguments, but mm. just teasing people's arguments out and taking them to their logical conclusion. For example, because you wanted an example. Bart talked about how, yes, there's election mm. and predestination, mm -hmm. but that if the cross is the prime revelation of God, mm. if we have any theological, uh, if we have any theological trajectory that doesn't go through Jesus, yeah. it's not Christian. Mm. Right. So he had to say, yes, there's election, yeah, but it goes through Jesus crucified and resurrected. Mm. So for him, that meant those that are in Christ are predestined because Jesus was the predestined one. Mm. Those who are in Christ are beloved because Jesus is the beloved one. Mm. 
And a lot of his contemporaries accused him of universalism mm. because of that, because he talked about how, you know, Christ, like it, it's really Romans five type argument mm. where Paul says in Adam, all men died in Christ. All are made alive yeah. in Adam. All men are condemned in Jesus. All men are made righteous yeah. are justified for Bart. That means humanity, right? Because Adam was representative of all humanity. Jesus is representative of all humanity. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I think I would take Bart a step further than he really would because he, and I think like, I've talked about this a lot before in the twenties and in the 1920s, I think that there were a lot of political reasons, him being a member of an established state church that would m- make him not say he's a universalist, right? Mm-hmm. Cause look at what happened to John Stott. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. For just uh, for believing in annihilation, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Did, yeah. For for not believing in eternal conscious torment, right, right. Um, so I take Bart to his logical conclusion that if Jesus is the predestined one, mm-hmm. and all humanity is represented in the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus, mm-hmm. then necessarily, couldn't you say all people then, in all times and all places, are predestined? Mm-hmm are brought into the kingdom of God, are brought into the family of God. So I do that with Bart. I do that with Piper. Mm-hmm. Um, I do that with, with Keller, like Keller's book, Center Church, talking about a gospel-centered church. Yeah. Um, I love that book. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah. like 90% of the, the things that I believe about ministry mm-hmm. come from that book, about how... Mm-hmm. The church flows from the gospel, the good yeah. news of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Yeah. You certainly don't shy away from language of gospel. No, not at all. Um, and I think that like progressives, we can learn a lot from our conservative brothers and sisters Yeah, and just see ourselves as members of one body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can hate 90% of what somebody says and still mm-hmm. love the 10% because that 10% is the Jesus I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like I still leave room for heresy. I still leave room for like false teaching. I think there's a lot of false teaching in the church, like antichrist, like there, like some theology, especially in American evangelicalism, like is antichrist. So like, let's leave room for that. But I'm talking about the folks that we know, even our friends and our family, like my mom and my dad who go to that same church that I went to, Mm. who who would not let me be a pastor there, Mm. who probably wouldn't let me be a communing member of that Mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. I left that church before my gayness ever came up, but Mm. uh, I'm going to be at the table with them one day. Mm. Right. I believe that as a Christian, as a Christian universalist, when, when all things are renewed and restored, I'm going to sit and dine at table with them. Mm. And I think it's profoundly offensive to Jesus to say, I can't dine with them now. And I was going to ask, and I, and I hear, and I hear what you're saying already theologically, but more maybe on a personal level. What gives you? I don't know if the better word is grace or courage, whatever word you want to use, to be able to look at somebody who would also self-identify as part of the body of Christ, but who would exclude you from the table. And yet be able to, to say, 
I include you. You might not consider me part of your family, but I still consider you part of mine. I think it was the Apostle Peter who said, don't repay evil with evil. Hmm. Or maybe, maybe that was Paul. One of the apostles. It's in the New Testament somewhere. Don't repay evil for evil. I'm never going to do to somebody what they did to me. Hmm. Personally or theologically. Hmm. Personally, they exclude me. Theologically, they write me out of their theology. Or they have me as a token. Hmm. Right? I'm never going to be somebody's token. Um, I'm never going to write a chapter in somebody's book that they're editing just because I'm gay. Yeah. Right. All that to say, if I was excluded from so many places in my journey and I was mm-hmm. a church that I loved here in Oklahoma city, dearly loved. Mm. And I was told I couldn't take communion there. Mm. And here, just let me tell you a story. My senior year of high school and this, this instance is so profoundly informative to not only my practice of ministry, my theology of the Christian life, but also um, my theology of the Eucharist that I'm writing my, my dissertation on. Mm-hmm. If I could just write a story about this moment in my life, yeah. I, my dissertation would be over. I was on a mission trip, a, a domestic mission trip here in Oklahoma City. We were partnering with another church in downtown Oklahoma City who was working with um, a homeless shelter. Mm. This church was a progressive Disciples of Christ church, right? We stayed in their church. It was like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday mission trip. Worked all night Friday, worked all day Saturday, went to church with them on Sunday. We're sitting at church on Sunday, and a woman comes up to preach. Hmm. We were told... Because in the disciples of Christ, they take communion every week. Yeah. We were told to not take communion with them. Hmm. I was one of the only people that got up and took communion. Wow. Because it just felt profoundly wrong. And we say this every week at the table. This isn't our table. Yeah. This is the Lord's table. Yeah. This isn't our invitation. This is the yeah. Lord's invitation. That's right. It just felt profoundly wrong to me. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked a lot about it. I think that the Zeitcast listeners can hear this. And hear this well. Um, I think that a lot of Christian maturity and Christian wisdom is learning how to smell bullshit. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. You just learn. You you just yeah. know. It's not about having your X's cross and your T's and your I's dotted. Yeah. It's not about that. Yeah. It's about just knowing when something just ain't right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. To say it in Oki terms, and that just wasn't right for yeah. me. And I've mm. I've developed my whole theology based mm. on that. Right mm. now, ten years later, mm-hmm. um, but I will never be a progressive mm. that looks at another conservative and says, "You're not welcome to my table." Because mm. I lead the liturgy probably maybe three Sundays a week at yeah. church. Right? Yeah. I will never be somebody that does to somebody what they did to mm, me. That's powerful. Ever. That's powerful. Ever. Um, I love that so much, Lance. There's some, and th- th- there's so much bound up in that for me. I'm wondering, um, kind of in the spirit of all this, maybe even coming back to one of the original things that you just said, because I love the way that you describe the trajectory of your journey of, you've always known a lot about Jesus, but coming feeling like it, it wasn't until much later in your journey that you feel like you've really come to, to know Jesus. So now that your story 
you know, we've been able to put a little bit more flesh in the bone. So what does, what does that look for you, look like for you now in terms of feeling like you're really coming to know Jesus? How is that different? It looks like wine poured out and bread broken. Mm. Um, I never really felt home in a church ever until now, really, you know, Mm -hmm. I felt very much at home, like 99% home in the Episcopal church that my husband and I went to feel 100% at home in the table. Um, and you could really trace my journey in how much and how regularly we took communion Mm. and what it meant. Mm. Cause there's this little epitaph in the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus is already resurrected and he comes and there's two guys walking and they didn't know Jesus was resurrected yet. Um, and long story short, you can go read it. It's the last chapter of Luke's gospel and he's made known in the breaking of bread yeah. and the preaching of the word. Yeah. Right. And one of the things I love about like my reformation theology background is one thing that um, John Calvin said is something that's so profound and mysterious and powerful about the Eucharist is that it's visible words, Mm. right? Mm. That just as surely as that bread goes down my throat and Mm. quenches my hunger, Mm. and just as surely as that wine wets my mouth and quenches my thirst, Mm. just as surely as that is, I can know that Jesus is for me and loves me Mm. and knows me, Mm. right? I didn't know that Jesus, and this is, I mean, this is so mystical, right? Yeah. I, I can't really do the math on this. Like you say, yeah. but I knew Jesus there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I knew the Jesus that was self-giving and there's so many different theological dimensions that one could talk about whenever you talk about the Eucharist, but it's, I'm known and I'm loved and I'm invited to the table. Yeah. yeah. And I met Jesus there. Mm. I met Jesus there mm. at the table mm. and I could never get away from that. Mm. I couldn't. Um, cause like in the Baptist church, we took it once a month, mm-hmm. you know, and those are my favorite Sundays. Mm-hmm. Right. So I feel like God's always been getting me to where he's, he's, he's putting me now. But that's one of the things that's so hard about this damn quarantine Yeah, is, you oh, know, yeah. and I'm sure for millions of Christians, not being sure. in, uh, in a place where we can regularly take communion together. But I mean, that was just such part of my story, yes. Yes. knowing Jesus and, what it looked like to break bread with other people. Yeah. And this is what my whole dissertation is about. Mm. I'm fairly certain there were Trump supporters to the left and to the right of me that were taking communion Yeah, at the Episcopal church I was going to. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the stickers on the back of the car. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, but I took communion with them. Yeah. Yeah. They got Jesus just as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just really profound for me and world shattering and theology driving. And like, that's, that's where I met Jesus. I feel like the, the fruit of the spirit matters so much anyway, in terms of seeing how God's working and in terms of, I'm sure over my life shifting how I think about scripture and sexuality and all that. But I tell you, in terms of the fruit of the spirit and how I see the spirit at work, in your life, this is one of the things I love the most. And it's why I so love it when you do lead us to the liturgy at the table, because there that there's such a sense of electricity whenever you talk about the table. It's clear 
how much it means to you and how much you meet God there. I think people f- feel it when you talk about it, how mm-hmm. real it is. And even though I know your background is not Pentecostal like mine is, it is that kind of like, I don't know, it is just that, it's just that strong sense of spirit that's there. And I think people always feel that at the table, that whenever you talk about it, there's that sense of like, yes, this is the Lord's table that you're being invited to, that you have experienced the spirit in that way. I'm wondering, um, I hope this isn't backtracking. No, I don't think it is. I'm wondering just knowing like, because when I do think about the spaces that you've come from theologically, even though I feel like in a really beautiful and sophisticated way, you've been able to reintegrate, knowing that you have come a long way from where you've come from to where you are now. And a lot of people haven't been able to make some of those kind of shifts. Like, was it, was it ever like really, really scary? Or did you ever take like a few steps and think, Oh, I hope I'm not really wrong about this. Were there were moments like, you know, did like, was it scary for you or from early on, was there such an assurance of the love of God that you just felt like you had to just kind of keep going? Like, you know, was there, were there moments of, of like really profound fear in moving, moving forward in this way? <coughs> Yes and no. So there's a story, I think it's in Acts 4. It's really early on um, after Pentecost where uh, the apostles are going out and preaching and they're getting beat up and they're thrown into prison. And then they come out and they preach it again. And the mm. Pharisees come and they say, why are you doing this? And they can't. And, and they say, we can't help but talk about what we've seen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So there has always been this um, trajectory in my life where... I have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to talk about this Jesus I know. Yeah. And what he's done for me. Mm. And, but yes, it was scary. Mm. And again, like I say a lot of these things cause like, I think I feel like being gay can help me be really self deprecating mm. in a way. Um, because I say a lot of things like half jokingly, half seriously, but I really say, it was harder for me to come out as a theological, a theological progressive who really doesn't believe in hell mm-hmm. than it was to come out as a Democrat in my <laughs> very funny. red family in 2016 <laughs> and to come out as gay. That's so funny. I believe you. <laughs> my family was okay with me being gay. My family was wow. a, uh, less okay with me mm. being a Democrat. Mm. But golly, my Facebook feed exploded mm. a couple weeks ago whenever I kind of condensed um, Brad Jerzak's talk mm. and said I wasn't a believer in, e- in eternal conscious torment. Wow. Well, that's so interesting. Exploded. My, like my, wow. my public feed, my private messages, mm. my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It was just crazy. And yeah, I was afraid. Yeah. Especially because there's people on there that I still, that, that are, that were still in my like middle way world. Yeah. Like the Episcopal world. Um, that I'm like, you know, that probably couldn't get me very far in that world if I ever wanted to go back that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can't help but talk about what I've seen. Yes, yes. What can you do except bear witness? I love that. I did want to ask you, and you know, this is not, I didn't definitely plan to ask this question. And I feel like in general, maybe it's a question otherwise I would be more cautious about it so far that, I don't know. I definitely don't feel like that you need to give an account for, I don't know, especially knowing how some of these scriptures have been used against, you know, folks within your community. But I just know, like, you've done such robust work on the text themselves, and I know that we've specifically had this conversation. I can tell you that even people in my life right now who are struggling with their sexuality, what to do with the scripture, I feel like the thing, because, you know, I feel like there, 
there's not consensus on anything. But I feel like most people I talk to these days are like, you know, when it comes to like Levitical law, yeah, 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 whatever. Well, nobody practicing these things or whatever. But I've, I've had conversations even in fairly recent weeks from people who are on some kind of a journey and they have had some kind of an awakening to the love of God and they're trying, but they're still wrestling with the text in particular. And for somebody like you, again, high view of scripture and who's not going to be who somebody says, well, Paul's full of crap and nobody in the first century knew what they were talking about. It's come up more than once recently. People say, well, what do you do with Romans one? And I know you've worked on that text and I know you've worked on Paul in particular. So just knowing that that's one of those sort of, you know, for us, whole swath of people has been kind of used as a text of terror. And I know that you're someone who would use Paul more, who would see Paul more as like a a theologian who brings liberty and brings grace as opposed to like oppression. Maybe just as a bit of a case study, like what have you done with a text like Romans 1 that has been really challenging and seen as one that's been oppressive for people who who might otherwise would go on a journey like the one you've been on? For me, Romans 1 is less oppressive and is less of a go-to text um, for gay bashing than the Corinthian text. Okay, well, let's where it's more explicit. Yeah, yeah, right? okay, sure. Because if you want to be a, because like I am a progressive, and I've said this again, half jokingly, half seriously, I'm a progressive because I'm a I'm a biblical literalist. Yeah. Well, in Romans one, it only talks about lesbians. Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> yeah, I got you. That's funny. <laughs> so, anyways, with that, now we could we could extrapolate a whole bunch of things from that. Sure, sure. But. I'll, like we can deal with Romans one if you want to, but, but no, really, I, you, you, we, I love your work on Corinthians. Yes. Yeah, so a, like much of my dissertation, which you can wait for until June of 2020, it will be out, uh, Lord willing. Um, but much of what I believe about ecclesiology, um, because for me, everything surrounds ecclesiology. Yeah. Everything. Um, and I borrow a lot of that from Wright, hmm. where soteriology the, what we believe about what Jesus has done to redeem us and reconcile us and restore us, like soteriology being like salvation theology, um, all of that is tied up in what it means to be a member of the church. Yeah. Who's allowed in and who's allowed out. Yeah. And if you really read Paul, and I've talked a lot about like Scott McKnight, um, he, he says reading the Bible backwards, his book, Reading Romans Backwards, Romans, at the end of Romans, says, welcome one another Mm. as God in Christ has welcomed you. Yes. Okay. So if at the end of this book, Mm. he's saying something that a progressive would say, Mm. I can't read the first 14 chapters Mm. with bigoted lens. Hmm. I just can't. Let's go back to the drawing board. Yeah. But anyway, that's how I deal with Romans 1. We can go there. Yeah. But for me, the historical situation in Corinth where there were some of, and I've read a paper on this. You can DM Jonathan and I'll send you the link. Um, where the historical situation in Corinth where there were the largest baths mm-hmm. in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, baths being places that men went to have sex with other men. Mm-hmm. He said in the same breath, almost in first Corinthians six and seven, mm-hmm. men be faithful to your wife. And obviously I'm summarizing him here. Yeah. Seeing men be faithful to your wives. 
and men who lay with other men do not inherit the kingdom of God. There's got to be something there that is really correlative to what he's talking about historically in Corinth, what's going on there. And we have texts outside this, outside the New Testament which talk about this, where in the Roman Empire, if you really had three kids, and just for the sake of argument, it took one conception, or sorry, one one sexual intercourse to get one kid and you had three kids in theory, you had sex three times in your marriage Mm. because sex was for making the empire work Mm -hmm. because to make an empire work, you have to have people, people that are subjects of the empire. Yeah. Right. Sex was not romantic in a way. Um, so where do you go to get that? Cause that's not the design of the human condition, right? We want passion. We want love. We want romance. We want sex to mean something more than just procreation. It's not how God designed it. It's what they would do. And I've been to these places in Rome. Like you can go drive by them, these Roman baths and go, go there and see them. Men would leave for weeks on end to go and have passionate sex with other men in Roman baths, mm. leaving their families to fend for themselves, mm. right? Cause women couldn't work outside the home. The men couldn't go and get their salt for the day. They couldn't mm. provide for their families. So that's why in other places in the New Testament, like in the, in, in the Thessalonian literature, he says a man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Mm. So the way I take it, and if you look and go back, and I'm privileged, so I'm kind of, an, I'm kind of a, a nerd at collecting old Bibles. Mm. If you go back and look pre like mid 1800s, the word homosexual didn't appear in the new Testament. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Right. So we can go there, but basically there was a historical situation in the Roman empire where men were leaving their wives to go and have sex with other men, which left their families basically homeless. Mm. And that, because he says, men stay faithful to your wives and basically Men who lay with other men don't inherit the kingdom of God in the same breath, in mm. the same chapter. Mm. There's got to be something correlative there. Mm. Um, so that's the actual exegetical way that mm. I describe it. The theological way is in in Galatians when he says there's no male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Mm-hmm. Those were the three, the only three categories of a human, mm-hmm. every human being in Paul's time could fit into one of those categories. So you're either a guy or a girl, you're either a Jew or you're not, or you're rich or you're poor. Mm. Slaver free, right? Mm. Because it wasn't racial slavery, it was economic slavery in those days. Yeah, that's right. Any category could fit into one of those categories, right? Any person could fit into one of those categories. And every single one of those categories, every single different dichotomy Mm. that Paul could think of, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And there's all, I mean, you go through every single Pauline text and you have these same instances where Mm. I think if Paul were here in this room in 2020 Mm. with us on this podcast, he would retweet what I'm saying Mm. that nobody, nowhere for no reason, Mm -hmm. if you need Jesus, Mm -hmm. you love Jesus and you want to follow Jesus could not take bread and could not drink wine, Mm. which is what it means to be a member of the church. Mm. Yes. To be at the table. Yes. 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 Oh, I love that Lance. And I love that it's again, like with everything that you do, it's thoroughly established in Jesus and the theology of Jesus. That's, 
That's beautiful. Um, I don't. I, I want to honor your time, which you've been so generous with already, and this has all been so wonderful. Um, I do love it when you pray, and sometimes even like I know at the end of service on on Sunday, I had you close us out with a, a blessing. But I'm knowing where people are who are listening on their own journey in terms of, you know, whether or not it's a, it's a story like yours or just in general, trying to figure out where they fit in their own story. Obviously, right now is a time where um, there's some level of anxiety for almost anybody. Um, but even, you know, I think, uh, you know, so, so many people would find themselves somewhere within that story of, you know, what a difference it is to know about Jesus as compared to like really, really knowing Jesus. I would just love before we close, if in some way, if you just sort of pray us out with some kind of a blessing. I feel like you always do that so beautifully with our folks at the table. So whatever direction you want to go with that, if you if you would feel so led, I would just, just yeah. let you pray for us. My friends, I invite the Lord to be with you. And a guy that I just met last week that's really had a profound impact on my life, his name is Brad Jerzak. He posted a, this sketch of Jesus hanging on the cross, and it's from his perspective. All we see are the hands nailed to the cross for the redemption of the world. And then it had little bitty circles, which we know are heads. There were little hairs on them. There were millions and millions and millions of circles. It starts out big, and they're all touching the hands of Jesus. And it goes back into the horizon. All we see are just little polka dots Mm. and then the caption was not one single human being is outside of that reach Mm. Mm. i just fight you yeah place yourself inside that reach yeah no matter what you've done where you've Mm. been Mm. who's told you who you are or in your worth you're inside that reach Mm -hmm. To just breathe that in, especially in these times of pandemic, right? We need Jesus more than ever. Yeah. And so God, our, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, we come to you humbly asking you to, to do what you do, to make all things new. Yeah. So burst through all old categories, burst through all old associations burst through all old declarations that crappy churches declared over our friends Mm -hmm. and just let them know that they are one with Christ Jesus already while we were still enemies, Jesus died for us Mm -hmm. and Jesus, we thank you that you dined with pariahs and Mm -hmm. the marginalized the tax collector, the, the most hated of society, the people that never thought they'd be able to be invited into the kingdom of God, they were there. We thank you that you've invited us there. Help us to rest in that place and help us to do everything we can with every breath that we have to not be able to not speak about the things that we've seen. Yeah. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep our hearts and our minds in the knowledge and love of God, the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon us and remain with us now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lance, for that prayer. And thank you for this beautiful time and sharing your story. Thank you, guys.
Oh, so hopefully, good. Hopefully we'll, we'll be on again soon. Yes. Oh, for sure. We'll absolutely have you back. And thank you for listening. For all of you, of course, sharing, liking, reviewing, any of that stuff helps. And for those who support us on Patreon, really means the world, uh, especially these days. So, so grateful for each of you guys. But Lance, what an hour this has been. I'm so grateful, my friend. Thanks, we will do it again soon. Yeah. So thank you, guys. Talk to you soon.